Hello and welcome to Your Care, Your Rights, Your Voice. I'm Mairead Painter and I'm here today with Carrie, Kelly, and Liz. These are members of other states. So Carrie and Kelly are from Illinois. Kelly Richards is the state long-term care ombudsman. And I have Carrie. And Carrie, help me with your last name again. Lelgedal. Lelgedal. Thank you, who is a family member in Illinois. And then um, Liz Stern, who is a family member here in Connecticut and has been working with our program, the Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program, um, on behalf of residents and family members throughout our state. So I want to welcome you guys today. And today we're going to talk about the connection that people need to family, friends, both physical, emotional support, and what we've really been advocating for since the beginning of the pandemic. We know that this has moved forward in a way and has now been represented as something called an essential caregiver. When we're talking about an essential caregiver, we don't necessarily mean anyone that would replace the required staff or staffing in a long-term care community, but these are the individuals that the residency as essential to their quality of life, to being able to um, have connections with people and emotionally support them in a way um, that keeps them going every day. Um, the ability to have someone to sit with, to talk to, um, in addition to the people who provide their hands-on care. Um, not to say that these individuals may not also help with some hand on, hands-on care as directed um, by the residents, but I want to get into this discussion. Um, I'm so thankful that you all were able to join me today. Um, Kelly, I want to introduce you as the state ombudsman and to give a little background about your program and what you guys have been working on in Illinois. Sure. Thank you. And good morning. Uh, again, my name is Kelly Richards. I'm the state long-term care ombudsman for Illinois. Happy to be here with you all. And uh, some of the things that we have been doing here in Illinois um, is to try to just uh, raise awareness to the ombudsman program to do outreach because COVID has um, limited us in a lot of ways. Uh, as a result of the pandemic. So we're just pushing forward, trying to make broader awareness of the program. We have started a state long-term care um, family support, um, resident and family support council. We meet bi-weekly and the participants really drive our content. We're trying to share information that will be essential for residents and family members uh, to help in systems advocacy in uh, any way that we can to just amplify the concerns of the residents and their family members. We have also partnered with uh, CARI and Caregivers for Compromise and trying to um, share information and uh, do systems advocacy and uh, just point people in the right direction as it relates to trying to broaden the understanding of the ombudsman program and how we can assist and help and support. Thank you so much. And absolutely, we are here to support residents and family members um, across our state. It's really exciting to hear that there are statewide family councils popping up um, in states across the country. Um, here in Connecticut as well. It's something we are formalizing. And um, I think due to the pandemic, it's something that is coming out of it that will be extremely helpful, this ability to connect virtually, to provide people with support, information, and education in a way that we have not historically been able to do. Um, and I think it'll really strengthen and empower people to make sure that their voices are heard. So we want to hear from all of you. And I 
um, here in Connecticut, as well as I'm sure in other states, I want to know what residents and family members are thinking because it helps me direct my policy making. And when I'm representing what um, people want to see as far as legislation, both at a state and federal level. And that's why we're here today. So Liz and Carrie, we've talked, um, we know that this essential caregivers bill at a federal level. So some states have already passed it as we have here in Connecticut, but that at any time, if the federal government um, has a waiver in place as they currently do uh, regarding visitation and access to residents, that it can make it very difficult. And that's why we need this at a federal level. We need to ensure that residents' rights and access to at least two individuals at all times is something that they never have to go without again. Um, you all have been working nationally with other family groups and are working on a book I'd like you to talk about and to tell us a little bit about your individual stories, what brought you here. So um, Liz, if you want to kick it off and then pass it off to Carrie, that would be great. Uh, I'm here because I think it's part of my DNA, but I didn't know um, this leg of my DNA until my mother um, had a massive stroke in uh, 2016. And um, she um, opened my eyes to the world of long-term care. Her home had to be in a skilled nursing facility. She was total care. Um, and she um, she was a, a, an incredible caregiver herself. She was a registered nurse right up until, and worked in her field right up until almost her 80th birthday. So at 87, when she ended up being a patient, um, this, was a, this was an interesting turn of events. And um, it just was a natural progression. I, you know, I became the person that she, I, I watched her be all her life. Um, so it's, um, we were very fortunate. Her, her facility was very close to my home. We picked it for that reason. Um, we, there was not one day, not one day before COVID hit that she was without family or um, a caregiver that the family was able to provide uh, a private CNA. And not, not 24 hours, not even 12, but it was between four and seven hours a day, every single day. And with time um, and a lot of love, this skilled nursing facility became the best home that, that for her needs. Um, there was no two ways about it. It was, um, she had a, a very good quality of life given her total care needs. Um, when COVID hit, um, her, the facility told us that her CNA could stay because she was a CNA, but after, um, I think it was 12 or 13 days, um, I guess, because there was a tremendous risk aversion at this facility, as there was all through the country, we were told that her private CNA could not, could no longer go in. And so then the eight months of isolation, um, started until her death on November 3rd. So we have her anniversary coming up on November 3rd. And since that time, um, I've had the, I guess I'm going to say the good fortune to um, to work with an amazing group of people in Connecticut. Um, it's been a very organic uh, group um, and Maraid's been <laughs> invaluable <laughs> to this, leading us and helping us to understand so many aspects um, and we went from that to, we reached out to national level. Um, we have, there are multiple levels of advocacy that's carry the carry will help us, um, you know, probably bridge to, and Marae, thank you for mentioning the book. I know we'll get around to that in a, in a few minutes, but, um, I'm very happy to be here and thank you for including me. 
Thank you. So, Carrie, if you can give us a little bit of your background, how you got involved, and what you're currently working on. So, I have a 33-year-old son that lives in an intermediate care facility for adults with developmental disabilities. Um, like Liz, we were very lucky to find a facility that's in our neighborhood. I currently live two blocks from my son's facility. Um, prior to COVID, I had 24-7 access, seven days a week. Um, I came and went as I pleased, brought him home when I wanted, and it made it doable for us because moving him into a long-term care facility was never my plan. My plan was always going to be the mom that kept her kid home forever, and it just didn't work, unfortunately. He's been there a little over eight years. It's a wonderful facility. We, he is well cared for, but it's not mom. It's not home. It's his home, but it's not being at home. So being that close made this such a good solution. My husband and I could go over anytime we wanted. Some nights we would bring him home for dinner. Other times we would take a pizza and go over there and have dinner with him. COVID stopped all of that. COVID stopped um, even the other residents that we over eight years have built such close relationships with that we are no longer allowed within so many feet of. So it's a very difficult situation. So I... Being the mom that I am and not taking no for an answer, I started calling, emailing, you name it, anybody and everybody in the state of Illinois. And, and the problem was, even when people listened, it wasn't changing anything. So um, last September, September 17th of 2020, CMS issued federal guidance for at least for compassionate care, which was supposed to help. A lot of places, a lot of states still today are not even following that guidance. Um, I had joined Illinois Caregivers for Compromise shortly before September and used the people I met in there. And together we all started, we had a bigger voice. So we went to our state capitol. We had a rally and, and a press conference that went really well. And then I started getting on the National Caregivers for Compromise page and meeting other people. And somewhere around January of last of this year, I, for some reason, decided we needed a national week of awareness and contacted a couple other people that I had met online from other states. And we, Liz and myself and others, we wound up getting 17 states to have a week of awareness across the country that our loved ones were still locked inside of their long-term care facility. Out of that, we got very lucky, and one of our members in New York, her congresswoman approached her asking how she could help on a federal level. And we're like, we need a bill. We need a law changed. So that was the start of 3733. The first attempt at the bill was not very good, unfortunately. And... Um, Carla, being who she is, looked at Congresswoman Tenney and said, sorry, this doesn't work for us. It doesn't help our loved ones. So then 12 of us who have zero political experience um, watching us muddle our way through this was kind of funny. And Liz and myself and Carla and others wrote a federal bill. With That's the, exciting. With the chief of staff from, from Representative Tenney's office. It was very exciting. It was a Huge learning experience. Mm -hmm. um, thank God, you know, that 
There are cartoons from our childhood that helped us remember how you pass a bill and Mm -hmm. become a law. And literally we use um, Schoolhouse Rock to remind ourselves how to do this. And then we got to go to D.C., which is where... Karen, can you back up? Why... I want to make sure people understand why we need a bill. So I'm sure people think, well, of course you can have access because in a nursing home, there's residents' rights and residents have the rights to, has the right to have a visitor of their choosing when they want. So why, we've had a lot of questions from different states. Why do we need this at a federal level? Why isn't this a state issue? Because um, Health and Human Services issued a waiver that gave CMS and the states and the facilities the right to restrict visitors, the right to stumble on our loved one's rights and say, no, you can't have a visitor. It doesn't matter. So, And when we're talking about visitors, you guys are not visitors, visitors, right? And so that's why we really worked on that word of visits and having, um, I think, the industry and the general public understand. I don't think there's been a good understanding even to this point, prior to the pandemic, how much free um, care, right? How much families did to support individuals in long-term care. And when you're talking about staffing, we know there's currently staffing issues. We'll have a staffing podcast at some point. There's staffing issues across the country, but that a lot of the support, um, you said to your loved one, as well as to other people, right? You Once you're in the building and you're talking to your loved one, you meet other people in the hall. There's people that you, they may have called you in before and said, Hey, can you help me with my TV or yes. I need a tissue box, right? Whether they would otherwise have to wait for a staff and you become a help you, your hands well, yes. on, you're, you're part of that, the life in that home. Right. Whether you're talking about that, I would go in and I, I went in a lot of times late at night and helped the staff get my son ready for bed and put him to bed. It was what we like to do. Um, you know, whether you want something like that or Liz going in and helping her mom get a bath or feeding her dinner. We all provided essential care. We are essential in our loved one's lives. There is a difference between a visitor and an essential caregiver. But we hear often that, okay, so you just said maybe helping someone with a meal or giving them a bath. We get a lot of pushback with, well, there's staff for that. Why wouldn't staff do that? Um, And I know, Liz, you and I have talked about the fact that, you know, there are staff for that and staff can spend a period of time. But there are some residents who either have a memory care issue or due to swallowing issues. It may take them an hour to an hour and a half to really have the opportunity to finish a meal or um, be fully supported in a bath or bathing in a way that um, it's comforting to them and family friends can have the opportunity to spend that time where a CNA who's working incredibly hard and is very dedicated, even the most dedicated, can't spend an hour and a half per individual to help assist them with meals. Um, So we want to make sure that people understand it's not about, you know, not having staff there or supplementing. This is a way, this was support that was always just there because of the care and love and connections that people had with residents. Well, and even Liz referred to that when she talked about a private caregiver that Mm -hmm. they had hired. Facilities cannot provide one-on-one care. They don't have the funding or the staff. I agree. Yes, Liz? 
I, I think that what we're all talking about here is um, quality of life issues. And um, we, we hear about quality care, but we, and we, we use words like um, person-centered care. Um, it's, we also use the word home. It's a nursing home. Um, and when you talk about the essence of a home, the essence of a quality life, um, I th- this is what um, we, I, unfortunately, we took for granted prior to um, March 2020. And it, um, I think we all needed uh, maybe the industry <laughs> and the regulatory, you know, um, organizations needed to understand um, or take a look at what quality we had because of the essential caregivers who were just inherent in so many, maybe not even enough, but at so many facilities um, throughout the country. Um, I think that we're looking at um, now what healthy means. Mm-hmm. Healthy doesn't mean uh, only uh, absence from disease. Right, medical conditions being met, but that overall sense of well-being, right, yeah. and of wellness and having that uh, those emotional supports. Yeah, and it's very sad. You know, we did you know, COVID was COVID was a time when we emphasized and we could only emphasize for you know disease, mm-hmm. and we didn't emphasize. We were unable to really focus in the beginning on what the um, secondary tertiary effects would have been by emphasizing just disease. And well-meaning guidance, but had unintended consequences related to, um, I know we've talked on other podcasts about physical touch, that for many of the individuals in the rest of the world, right, in of 2020, that April, May, June period of time, there was very little touch happening and how we all felt out in the community at large and what that did to individuals socially and emotionally. And our long-term care residents have been dealing with that lack of touch, lack of social and emotional support for a year and a half now. Um, And what that has done, the ability to finally, 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 have um, an individual receive a hug or touch not related to direct care. And that those are the things that family, friends, loved ones, essential support people who help individuals reach their goals do in these settings, Um, no matter the setting, right? Long-term care settings can mean a lot of different things in different states and they look different, but at a core, they're all the same in the fact that you have staff hired individuals caring for residents that live there and they get support from friends and family as as able. I'm wondering if you guys could talk a little bit about um, the book that we've referenced and how that came about. Um, We did all travel to Washington, D.C. to try to advocate for um, the federal bill, which is currently H.R. 3733. I want to make sure that everyone out there listening today um, reaches out to your national leaders and explains why um, for each of you, this is so important and why we still need to move this bill forward, not only for this pandemic, but for any time in the future where there may be a reason, a national emergency, when visitation, traditional visitation, access to individuals in long-term care um, might be restricted in some way and that we can never allow individuals who live there, these residents to go for periods of time like we have 
um, without those connections. So um, Carrie, Liz, if you want to talk a little bit about what came out of um, our advocacy in Washington, D.C., what's still happening and how we're moving things forward now. So the bill is, first of all, it's not a visitation bill. It is an essential caregiver bill. Every resident of long-term care in any facility that takes Medicaid or Medicare would be entitled to two essential caregivers that could come in up to 12 hours a day and provide whatever care the, the resident needs, whatever care the family's comfortable of providing or the friend. But it is not open the doors wide. It is not uncontrolled. The essential caregiver would be required to follow all the same safety protocols as the staff, um, from PPE to testing to whatever the staff is required. And the facility will have the right to educate and you know set a program to make sure that the caregivers are following the same rules. There will be steps in place for um, in case a facility does not follow the rules, that the family will have recourse. There will also be steps in place for the facility if the caregivers don't follow the rules. We are not asking anybody to open the doors wide if we're in a national emergency or local health emergency, but we're asking to let our loved ones retain their right to have essential care provided for them. Thank you. Liz, what else do you have there? Well, I think that, uh, Mairead, you asked about the book. Mm -hmm. um, the book, <clears throat> we, we all know that um, the power of a personal story. And um, there, there's not enough hours in the day or days in the week to tell all of the personal stories. And we, we've told them and we've told them, but we, we can't do it enough. So the book that is um, at the printer as we speak um, tells the stories. It tells the stories from 50 states. Um, it has illustrations from or photographs from 50 states. Um, it explains what we're talking about today in plain language. Um, it's going to really turn a corner so that we reach all 535 legislators in Washington, D.C., and then selected other um, people of note. But this book will be placed on the desk of all 535 um, of our lawmakers in Washington, D.C. Um, we anticipate that this will give great pause and um, give momentum to H.R. 3733 that, um, you know, the advocacy groups that are working tirelessly now can't possibly do. We need to get to all 535. We need... Um, for our administration, <laughs> there will be, you know, we will, they will go beyond the 535, but um, we're, we're very excited about the book. It's, um, it's personal, it's poignant, it's powerful. Um, and it's going to give us the voice that we've tried for 18 months to be heard throughout the country. And we are being heard, but this is going to give us such a bigger reach. Got it. And it's tangible, right? So they can pass it on. They can say, oh my gosh, look at this, share it with their, their staff. Um, I will say I'm extremely happy to be able to say that um, Congressman Larson here in Connecticut was one of the first co-sponsors of the bill. Um, we also have Congressman Joe Courtney who has signed on, but we need so many more. I want to see every member 
of our congressional um, delegation here in Connecticut sign on as well as in other states, because this is not a, a partisan issue. This is bipartisan. There is no financial um, monetary no. amount, no note to this. Um, this is about people. It's about people in every state and people that everyone represents. I don't know any family or anyone that hasn't been been touched in some way by an individual in long-term care. And every time I speak to either um, someone in politics or someone who knows someone in politics, they've all been impacted. So we want to make sure that they continue to hear these stories and see that it's not just our state. It is not a state issue. This is a national issue. Yeah. Well, and it's also, and it, there's also sides to this that people have missed. They don't, most people don't realize that there are, first of all, there is pediatric long-term care. Those facilities, the families of little bitty ones also were locked out. You know, there is a, there's many adults with developmental disabilities in different varieties of long-term care across the country as there are senior citizens. So, you know, the world looks at, Long-term care is the nursing home where, unfortunately, you put grandma or mom, mm -hmm. but it's not just that. It This affects every age, every level of social, you know, from, it doesn't matter, gender, race, economics, it affects everybody. And we need to, to help everyone understand that, that we need to make sure everybody's on an equal playing field. And when I say, you know, we're not asking to open the doors wide. The other avenue of this is, or other side is, not all residents have visitors regularly. The majority don't. Correct. So yeah. those that do, which is less than 30%, will be the ones that will have essential caregivers. We, as we're providing care for our loved ones, will make it so the staff can provide care for others. Yeah. And I would just like to echo everything that you all have said. And I just want to just point out that I think that um, this should be the baseline standard to adopt um, this caregiver bill, period, you know, because it's just so important. I mean, this pandemic has just been the perfect storm and we don't want to repeat this ever again. And we need to learn from our mistakes. And I think that this bill um, will help us learn from those mistakes and be able to um, ensure that people are not isolated and that they can get that care that they need. Absolutely. And to your point, Kelly, learning from what we've seen, what we've experienced, what has happened, um, as we said in the beginning, that a lot of the parameters that were put in place were really well intended as people tried to respond to this pandemic that we didn't know um, all of the ins and outs of and exactly what to expect. But as we saw the impact to the individuals that we're all here to talk about today, I think we need to learn from what we saw and never allow that to happen again. Um, and we continue to see, right? We're still seeing the effects of this long-term isolation. These are studies that we started prior to COVID related to what happens when someone is experiencing isolation in the community in general um, and how to combat that. And then we got into this situation. So really trying to push back and show that this is essential at all levels, Carrie, to your point, all ages, all socioeconomic backgrounds, race, ethnicity. Um, and for some individuals, when you're talking about um, person-centered care, 
and person-directed care. For some individuals related to race and ethnicity, there are things that they want to be able to do and have in their lives and those connections that are really important to them that they can't maybe receive from a staff member, that it would be really important and essential to receive from a loved one. Um, and this goes to food as well. Uh, we talked a lot about failure to thrive, weight loss, having access to food, the food of their choosing coming in from family, um, where it keeps people back. That's how we stay alive, right? Touch, food, smell. When you take all of those things away, um, what is your reason for moving forward to the getting to the next day? And so that's why we are here today to talk about this Um Carrie and Liz, I want to give you each an opportunity to give another plug about what people can do, how they can support this moving forward um, and next steps. I think I'm going to take my time to um, underscore the optimism that I feel right now, the hope that I have right now. Um, I There's one group that I would like to um, do a shout out to, and, and, and I uh, and that's the staff. And I and I have I have had the good fortune of making some of the people who took care of my mother um, my friends, and I, I meet them for coffee. Um, we keep in touch. Um, even some of the administrators, I I know that this is a group that if we, and I maybe Marade at an, at another time when you do your uh, yeah, a podcast on staffing, I think there's not one person who I have spoken to, not one. And I speak to dozens every week who have not thought that this is a good idea. Mm-hmm. And so I, if that being said, I guess I go back to the question I keep asking, you know, what is the reluctance? Um, I think we've yet to find out, but I, um, I'm hopeful that we're turning that corner. Um, there's not one staff member who doesn't say, I can't wait for this to happen. Um, I felt welcomed. Um, every day that I walked into my mother's facility. And I know I was missed when I was unable to. When the few times I was able to stand outside and I saw the staff inside, I know that I was giving them as much energy and, and you know, support as I was my mother. Um, you know, it, it's, I really want to um, use my time to just say thank you to the staff and um, say that uh, we're coming, <laughs> we'll be there. To that point, Liz, I do want to say, for the staff, the staff that are in these long-term care communities and have been there and have continued to stay and show up every day, this has been a commitment like no other. Um, and the people who are there, you wouldn't be there unless they really, they cared about the individuals that they're there and they want to see them do well. And I know we had staff reaching out to us saying, what else can we do? These restrictions are in place. We're trying the FaceTime. We're trying to get people to eat with FaceTime, but they want their loved one, daughter, mother, sister, brother here, and they're not going to do it without it. So the staff were even reaching out saying, this is something we need um, because they want to see the people that they're there to to work with, to serve, um, do well. So to your point, yes, and we're very thankful for the staff that have been so committed and continue to show up every day and and push for this as well. Thank you. Carrie? So first of all, you know, long-term care is so all-encompassing. You know, depending on why somebody's there, they could be there one or two years or somebody like my son who could be there more than 50. So that's the first. We They need access to their essential people because 
that is their home. They expect to have those people come in to be in their home with them. So what can we do? We can all contact our legislators um, and our, you know, both Congress and senators and ask them to support our bill, ask them to co-sponsor it, ask them to get us hearings. If we can get public hearings, our bill will pass, no question. All they need to do is hear our voices, which is what the book is doing. Um, we raised enough money, thank God for some very generous people, in eight days to cover the entire cost of this book um, of 80 pages of a hardcover, beautiful color book that is gonna be sent um, individually to every congressman and senator in the United States. So that's first. We will start selling the book as soon as it's delivered for families that wanna read it or if somebody wants to use it as an advocacy tool to help spread our message. Um, it will be on all of our different Facebook pages. It will be on our websites. Use the book for what it is. It's a great story telling, heartbreaking, but it's the truth. It shows what this has been. It shows where we've been and what we're asking for. And it clearly states what we're asking for. So by using the book to be our advocacy tool, it can work at both state and federal levels. You know, you guys were very lucky in Connecticut. You passed a bill. I couldn't, I helped write the Illinois bill too. We couldn't even get it heard. Mm. You know, we're going to try again in January, but together we can all fix this, but it's going to take everybody calling, emailing, talking about it and making people understand why this is so important because our loved ones are there because they need care. They're not, you know, this should be about their quality of life. We're not saving them to just keep them alive. We're we're trying to make sure they get the most they can out of their life every day. The quality. And yeah. I would suggest that in every state, anybody listening to this, if you have um, a member of your legislature, legislature can't talk today, um, a congressman or woman senator that wants more information, they are welcome to reach out to my office, your local um state ombudsman in your state. Um, we have information. We can connect you to people in your state who have experiences um, that they want to talk to you about. Um, if you want to know how it's impacting the individuals that you serve, we can connect you to family and residents who have individual stories in every state. So please um, reach out. If you are someone who wants more information to share about the bill, you're also welcome to reach out to us um, Again, the National Consumer Voice has connections to all state um, long-term care ombudsmen, and you can look there on how to reach um, your state office. I want to thank you all for being here today, Carrie, Liz, and Kelly, and helping us just to um, get the information out about um, the Essential Caregivers Bill, HR 3733, um, and that is our podcast for today. This is Your Care, Your Rights, Your Voice. Please continue to join me for future podcasts. Listen wherever you get your podcast and continue to send in um, questions and what you would like to see moving forward uh, and listen to here. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs>